0: Don't take time to look at it through other people's eyes. Take some time and reflect on what you believe in your soul. Cause that is the key to life, you gotta let the negativity go.
1: Hello, what the Foxers. This is Amber Ross, one of your co hosts of What the Fox podcast. Just popping in with a quick reminder before to ta- today's episode. Um, it is summertime, and this summer, Lindsay and I are doing something a little different. We are bringing back some of the most popular, some of the most well loved. Um, some of the most influential episodes from previous seasons, um, and just sharing those with you again for some new insights, some new opportunities, and for the folks who weren't with us at that period of time. So stick around, hang in there. Today's episode um, is going to be amazing, and we wanted to quickly remind you that we are so very grateful for our sponsor, uh, Therapy Appointment. Therapy Appointment is built for therapists by therapists and is the practical tool for starting, growing, and managing your practice. So check them out um, and just thank you so much for being here with us this summer and we hope you enjoy.
2: Welcome to What the Fox podcast with your co-hosts, Lindsay Fox and Amber Ross. Today hey. we today we do have Adam Balungus joining us from Assumption College. He is a psychologist who has joined us today to discuss the topic of languishing welcome back dr. Blongus
0: Thanks for having me Lindsay and Amber
2: of course absolutely so I love that we are covering this topic because it is very timely in the sense that uh, we did just recently have an episode about resiliency and toxic positivity and that sort of thing um, and then when we had touch based about languishing this was sort of a Buzzword, so to speak. I think in uh, last year, when an article came out, I'm not sure if it was the Adam Grant article with the New York Times or if it was through mm-hmm. Corey Keys. Are you not it's in your head, Adam?
0: Right? Well, Corey Keys coined the term, which I don't know when a while ago, but Adam Grant's the one that kind of really put it on the spotlight when he published his article in the New York Times.
2: Okay, so uh, Corey Keys is a sociologist, and he is who uh, coined. I guess this as the opposite of flourishing. So um, symptoms of languishing include burnout, no motivation, and kind of like a sense of numbness. Um, and it's not necessarily a mental illness, but um, it can be helped with a number of coping techniques that we will discuss today. But I'm wondering if you just sort of want to dive into this and, and inform us like more about what in the world languishing is and how we have seen it present during this pandemic. Mm.
0: Sure. Um, So it's a term that, you know, admittedly myself, just like as an observer, when I heard people talking about Adam Grant's article, my ears kind of perked up. I'll be completely honest. I actually heard of it, but I didn't really read it until a couple of my clients, you know, as a psychologist, I see clients doing a lot, you know, working with, Traditional depression, anxiety, and stuff like that over the pandemic, and a couple of my clients even said you should read this article, like actually take a deeper look into it. Um, and it was it was very helpful to me to kind of, you know, Grant talks about like it's good to have words or terms to use so we mm. can kind of communicate in a way that it makes sense to all of us. And you know, as a psychologist, when I treat clients, you kind of see the depression or the anxiety most cases. But you see a lot of people that don't necessarily have a mental health disorder but aren't doing that great either at the same time. Um, And in this one could apply this term to anybody kind of struggling with something but this what brought this article about was about the whole pandemic the blah feeling that we have. Um, One of the things that sticks out with me from grant is. um, that technically, he argues, this isn't like truly being burned out like we typically think of, like yeah. in certain professions. You kind of still have the depression, uh, the energy, but you're not necessarily clinically depressed either because you still kind of have that hope. Mm-hmm. Um, he used the ter- terms like joyless and 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 aimless, um, even like stagnation and emptiness. Um, yeah, like Groundhog's
2: I'll, Day, right? It's yeah. like yeah. waking up I and everything just thinking thing.
0: over, yeah, over and over. No, it's an excellent yeah. point. It just keeps going and going and right. going. I made, you know, one mental note related to your point, Lindsay, when I was writing this is that, um, you know, typically research shows that and this may sound paradoxical at first that when we have acute stressors, which is not fun or pleasant, like something really big that happens within a short period of time, most of us over time, you know, can, can cope with that relatively well, unless you're talking like trauma, PTSD, it's the chronicity mm. of stressors over time. So, you know, I, I kind of was thinking, like, if this pandemic only lasted for, in quotes, I say only two or three months. You mean most like of us how would we be, were advised? Yeah, like yeah. it was going to be two or three months, but then it gets dragged out. <laughs> it's just like, that's where you really start to see the languishing is year after year. Literally, what, we're approaching right. two full years pretty soon? Like Well, when think we...
2: about our stress response and how our cortisol right. operates. Like, it was never, the human condition was never designed to be in this constant state of stress. Uh, for for year over year Mm -hmm. over year like this
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: when like with no end in sight right like we all at this point have major trust issues because in the beginning they're like okay two three (laughs) months we lock it down stay home you know stay away from with
2: with everyone amber or the government
1: (laughs) yes all of the above Um, (laughs) yes to that continued all of it uh no but like we have these trust issues because it's now you just don't know, is it going to end? What is the end of this pandemic living going to look like? Like what is normal even mean anymore? And mm-hmm. it's that constant, those thoughts are spinning in my head, like at least 10 hours a day. Like, did I grab my mask? Do my kids have hand sanitizer? You know, did somebody over there just cough? Like constantly this subconscious worry or stress or like fight or flight is, always activated. So Adam, when, um, the three of us started talking about this, I was like, Oh, this makes so much sense. Like, yes, I am fine, but no, I'm not fine. Like all day long. I'm just waiting for that other shoe to drop. On like what's the next thing that's going to turn my life upside down
2: <laughs> right you know another person described this as like the indicator is more of the the absence of peak mental health rather than it mm. being like a uh series of like signs uh, like a a list of signs and uh, symptoms so to speak that would be in the dsm uh, which is what we use for like a clinical diagnosis so languishing is not a, a, a condition where it's a a mental health condition that you're going to get diagnosed with. Uh, do you mind kind of commenting on that a little bit, Adam, with regard to like uh, languishing as like either an emotional state or is it like a short-term condition?
0: Um, you know, I, I, I'm still learning this myself. I, I feel like it's it's. I don't think it's a short-term condition because I think for a lot of us, we've had it for quite a, a while. Maybe it's I was a, like define it's a short-term. Long, uh, yeah, maybe <laughs> yeah. a long-term. Well, maybe emotional not permanent. State.
2: Lifetime. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it depends how you want to define it. But um, I don't look at it as like, I don't technically look at it as a personality characteristic in that regard. But I, I do look at it as something that um, it's like a whole combination of icky kind of emotions, but they're mm-hmm. kind of dull. They're not super intense for some, but it's more chronic in nature. Um, you, know you know, the Harvey it,
2: danger it, song, you know, the Harvey <laughs> danger song, the the I'm not sick, but I'm not well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, good, that's, that's what a, I think of with
2: this. Like, that's yeah. exactly what I think of with this, where <laughs> it is like that sense of blah. It's like you're <laughs> not you're not totally depressed, but you're also not at your peak, you know, optimal level of functioning either.
0: Yeah. Well, just to use what Grant said to your point is, uh, what is it? The neglected middle child of mental health. He talked yes. about the spectrum of depression on one end, you know, despondent, drained, worthless, hopeless, all the other, mm-hmm. you know, icky stuff that we're familiar with and flourishing which not to are feeling that, but they call that the peak of well-being or Rogers may call it like self-actualizing or something yeah. like that. This is somewhere in the middle. You're not feeling great, but you're not way on the other side of the spectrum either.
1: Like basically you get the stuff done that you need to get done, but you don't necessarily have the level of joy or excitement that maybe you once had. And I know I felt this um, a lot over the last couple of years, obviously until recently, I didn't have a name for it, but in some ways, I feel more empowered knowing there's a name and knowing it's not just like something that is this weird feeling that I'm experiencing that I can't explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important. And it's important to Lindsay, you and I've talked about this, like yes. feel the feel, acknowledge the feeling, yeah. like call, it bring it tame out.
2: It. Yeah. Name it to tame it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: absolutely. And to, to your point, Amber, too, not to sound too hokey, but it's it's kind of nice to know that we're not you or me are not the only ones having these feelings yeah you know what I mean like what's wrong with me this is weird it's like oh shoot many many people are going through this at the same time
2: absolutely and then just thinking about when so many of us have been working from home and that also really really screws up our fundamental need for like Whenever I think about routine predictability consistency and having like your a break in your schedule or having that just something that I feel like I really took for granted, for instance, is like that commute time. Mm. Because I feel like that commute time to and from work or in between clients in terms of going in between uh, homes for in home therapy uh, that allowed my brain to just sort of like filter out or process out whatever it needed for whatever that was or to transition effectively from one Mm -hmm. family to another or from my work headspace to my home headspace. and i do feel that even something that small has actually had a pretty significant impact in terms of my functioning and needs of you know creating more uh, set boundaries or setting appointments Mm -hmm. in a certain kind of a way uh because it is very easy to just work all the time when you're at home it's very easy to just find yourself constantly checking your emails or doing follow-up things or it's 10 o'clock at night i think i'll follow up on this thing or do some admin work over here. That's actually, it's interesting that you point that out.
1: So prior to all the changes with the pandemic, I worked from an office, you know, 45 minutes from my house. And I had a team of people that I worked alongside when we all first came home, people were checking emails and sending emails at midnight at 2 AM at 4 AM at 6 AM. And finally, like management was like, Hey, I need you folks to put your computer in a different room if it is on your kitchen table, put it somewhere else, put it in a closet. You do not need to walk by this computer and just decide to send an email at 2 AM. Like that's not, this is not mentally healthy. This is not sustainable. Like sleep, maybe like pay attention to your family, do something (laughs) else because yes, you're a valued employee. And we would like for you to, you know, shut it down at some point. And it was amazing to me that I was doing the same thing. I would take my computer into the kitchen with me cooking dinner. Like I would take my work with me to areas and aspects of my life that I previously had really strong boundaries about, but because it was here and it was convenient, I was like, Oh, what's the, what's the harm? It's no big deal. But that compounded over time. And I'm like, wait, these are 90 hour work weeks. Now what's
2: happening. <laughs> like, oh, well, I crazy. tell you hundred percent on that one. I know you do. Yeah.
0: I think it's, the pandemic has kind of um, highlighted already pre-existing social cultural issues To So again, Amber, what you were saying, that stuff people were struggling with that even before the pandemic, you know, just yeah. email, you know, even a, a quote unquote yeah. regular job where you come home and it just became a real cluster. You know, when we started fully working from, for a lot of us, it's learning that adjustment of balancing home yes. life and work life. So we were already struggling that for decades. I think it's just, now it's gotten really bad for some. somebody
1: of us. threw kerosene on it and like yes, lit a match.
0: Ex- exactly. <laughs> and now it's just yeah. highlighting what we need as a society and individually what we need to work on. You know, I've seen it go the other way too. I've seen some people, even myself, when I used to work from home is that um, sometimes I'm not as productive because I'm doing other things in the house. Like I'll do these chores. I'll do those things i walk, you know, and in some ways you like that, but other ways you're just not being efficient either. So you mm-hmm. feel like you're working more, but, the, you know, it's, but in the quality of the efficiency of the work goes down too. At least you don't have a system. I think that's in place. fair,
2: but I also think that ties into languishing, right? Yes. Because there's like that dull aspect of just like, let me just do what I need to get done. <laughs> and just keep on trucking. Like, Mm -hmm. let me just kind of keep doing the things that I need to do, whether it's the bare minimum for the day or what have you. which is, it sort of brings my mind to at least, because I, I mean, I know I am notorious for doing things like this, um, just depending on how my work week has been. But then I find myself at the end of the day feeling really depleted of energy. Like I have, like maybe I've been working all day long or I've been on back to back calls or maybe just like maybe three sessions or something, which is like really intense or really draining for me emotionally. Yeah. So then I'm just sort of feeling like completely blah at the end of the day. So then I find myself at nighttime where that's like my, I call it my me time or my catch up time when in fact I've been home the entire day. So this is when I, I love that this article actually brought this up because it's something that I definitely uh, associate with ADHD as well, um, which is this idea of like the um, revenge bedtime, uh, excuse me, revenge bedtime procrastination, um, mm. which is this idea of like staying up late at night to reclaim a sense of freedom or joy or whatever, all the things that you missed out on during your day. So that's whenever I kind of screw around and will look on my phone or post things online or kind of dabble and do things where I'm like staying up extra late at night. Yeah. <laughs> and then losing out on sleep that I need to help me be at optimal mental health the next day. Mm-hmm
0: yeah ahead, um. i mean sure <laughs> so um this this is an interesting I, I my opinion this could be like a whole separate kind of conversation um the when when grant like another podcast for example but grant you know brings this up here uh i think he says like he talks about the way this i guess it's a chinese expression how maybe uh, initially and it's been brought up maybe it's retaliation against loss of control but grant argues that maybe it's a quiet defiance against languishing you know mm-hmm. so Again, I think of myself, I think I've been, I I became guilty of this, having my child about five years ago, it'll be five this Saturday, where I had a busy, long, stressful day. Um, my wife and I, um, you know, it's all the kiddo, he goes to bed really late, and then maybe we get an hour or two in together. Um. You know, at, you know, once he goes to sleep and before we can go to sleep and we just try to get as much as we can done, like yeah. quality time. Right. Um, and so, but I think a lot of people now have seen this with during the pandemic too, is because, you know, uh, I think, again, I'm trying to use what to think about his, his language, but some level of bliss or some momentary quality goodness of a day and a day that was languishing to at least salvage a portion of the day. Um, you know, and I think that's true. I've seen myself personally just fighting it. Like, I know I should go to sleep, by twelve, yeah. but it's like I'm kind of having fun watching this, or um, <laughs>
2: exactly. I'm so excited advising a, a
0: to-do list. Yay! You know, it's it's just <laughs> anything. I it's feel that like idea
1: being- of control, though. Like you get to decide that you're going to go to bed later so that you can watch the show you want to watch, versus like all day long. Oftentimes, we're at the mercy of someone else scheduling us, or someone else needs us to do something, or like thinking of me as a mom. Like my kids hit the ground running at about six thirty, and it's breakfast, it's change clothes, it's wash dishes, it's, you know, figure out the day. So yeah, you are on. And then when they go to bed, it's like, Oh, I'm my own person again. Bonus so like time. I can have some satisfaction of just doing things for totally. me. Like I get it. And then it's a like vicious cycle of, I didn't get any sleep. So now I don't have energy to do the things. But I'm not going to go to bed early because I still want to have the time where I'm in control of what I get to do. And it's like day after day, you're just sabotaging your own energy levels and you're sabotaging your own productivity. Because I don't know if this is like an ADD thing or a type A thing, but if I can't get to the end of a day with like knowing that I achieved certain things, like if I have my to do list and I didn't get to mark off any of them, but I was quote unquote busy all day. I feel like I've done nothing. And that's a super struggle for me. So then I find myself at the end of the day, trying to squeeze in the things that are going to make me feel like I've achieved something or going to make me feel like I put my time to some sort of good use, which also aids in the languishing because if I don't feel that joy of accomplishment or that joy of having done something, then I just feel like blah. And you know, what did I spend my time doing? Go ahead, Lindsay.
2: So this, I feel like there's so much to say about what you just mentioned, because automatically my brain is going straight to, we're talking about languishing in the context of like, even your work life in terms of being burnout, working all the time, constantly on call and and all the things. But when uh, Adam was talking about just the idea of the cultural norms behind Mm. or work-life in the absence yes. of a work-life balance, so to speak. I think a part of this, which is a larger conversation as well, is just the fact that in the United States, culturally, there's a huge component here that equates productivity with self-worth. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, that's a huge piece too. It's like, we see that we're not getting that thing done. And so you might be feeling blah after, well, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a little bit of a, a thing going on there where, you know, society kind of has conditioned us to have some um, beliefs around how how much we should be doing, how productive we should be doing in an effort to feel like we've met our quota or um, have, you know, are worthy enough for whatever that is. Yeah, um, Absolutely. I personally don't do the to-do list thing in the way that you do. I think we've kind of laughed about our differences in that way. <laughs> but I can definitely relate to um reclaiming my freedom at nighttime and completely yeah. sabotaging my sleep patterns.
1: <laughs> it's tough. And it it's absolutely like society's impact on us as people and humans that even the idea that we are supposed to feel so much joy in a day. And if we're not feeling that level of joy, then we're languishing. Like when this topic came up, I'm like, but maybe it's not about being like level 10 joyful every single day. That's unrealistic. That's an expectation that I personally don't think can be met. But then does that automatically mean you're languishing if you're not on level 10? Like, where do we draw the line? And I think I'm interested to see what y'all say from your perspective, because I automatically want to rail against it and say, well, I'm not languishing, like I'm living. But I also know that I'm not living, if you know what I mean, like, there's a difference.
0: Well, I think that goes back to the chronicity part of it, nobody's going to have all 10s, or anything, you know, some people could claim to do, but the point is the average person isn't gonna have many tens or many, many ones and zeros. I think it's more of the, I'm getting a whole bunch of three fours and fives Not just for one day or a week, but many months and now a couple of years. That that's how I kind of look at that piece. And and maybe on the average, I'm just making this up. Maybe my average is usually a seven-ish each year, whatever. You know what I mean? But now it's like a four or five. And so I'm not icky enough to say I need to, you know, really serious professional help, but I know something just doesn't feel right. Like I feel not productive, I'm not connected. I feel off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not myself. A lot of people say that I'm off my baseline.
2: Yeah. I'm kind of curious, um, Adam, do you mind kind of touching on at least like, what do you think the difference is between like dysthymia and
0: languishing? Well, I don't know. It, it, it's, I would say that well, if, maybe if, first if, when I just, hear the word, I, just if I hear dysthymia, I'm thinking like persistent depressive disorder, like a depression kind of personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would look at that as it's still chronic, but instead of having a variety of, of like, again, sticking with the scale four fives and sixes, that person's kind of having more twos, threes, and fours. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's there, okay. it is it's 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 a chronic component, but they're at a much lower baseline mm. than the average.
2: Which actually might go to what you were saying earlier today about how um, research has suggested that people uh, who do experience. Uh, languishing over a period of time are more inclined to end up with those conditions later or yeah. end up with a clinical condition later on.
0: Right. Because Grant says, which is, you know, we don't have the data, like but he says, perhaps there's more people that are languishing than there are people with major depressive disorder, which could be true. Um, but at well, the same time, now- languishing can be a risk factor for later on developing depression or generalized anxiety disorder, or for some sure. people even PTSD. So, so, cause if you're in the actually, middle, you could go either way, you get a little bit better or you could start going the other way. And now, now I may need professional help.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's a good kind of segue because we wanted to also cover and provide some tips and conversations around what to do to kind of break that languishing cycle or things that you can do to bring that into your control of taking a step in the direction, you know, whether it's finding sure. someone to talk to you know what that looks like so what because... is
2: the antidote to, to yeah, what's the, the antidote publishing? that yeah. exactly that yeah <laughs> fix it well... flow <laughs> the answer is flow go with the flow
0: <laughs> well yeah well I, I can start off I can make a couple of things that Grant says and then there was a couple elements that he suggests that is very similar to how one treats depression in some ways mm. but you know he uses the word flow I thought so um... too by the way <laughs> yeah <laughs> like well, um... that
2: sounds like a Kind of you know, and I
0: think I remember too, Lindsay, we were talking too about like mindfulness or two. And he says he argues that, you know, I'm going to use a quote here from just so I don't get it wrong for flow, elusive state of absorption in a meaningful challenge, or momentary bond. I think that's a huge key element of a definition of flow, where your sense of time, place and self melts away. I think all of us, I used to hear that when I was younger in sports, like the flow, all that kind of stuff, but you could be doing almost anything where you feel really engaged into a task. But I think the key element there too, is you're having some level of challenge. Um, like a self challenge where you're getting accomplishment because I I you know I can argue mindfulness is very effective for a lot of my clients but this is different than mindfulness because mindfulness you know being present oriented having maybe even some level of acceptance here is like almost saying get a task get a task that you can really feel connected to and really enjoy that process and have a sense of challenge. Yes,
2: I just want to repeat that one more time what you said just so we can kind of like hold space for that <laughs> that quote. I think that was really well said. So the definition of flow is at least by grant, mm-hmm. an elusive state of absorption and a meaningful challenge or a momentary bond where your sense of time, place, and self melts away. So I love that because it's essentially saying like, whenever we think maybe the opposite is resting, it's it's essentially kind of promoting a sense of like active rest. Correct. Mm-hmm. So like really in like engaging, um, you know, your brain in the sense where there's something cognitively demanding of it mm-hmm. and it's making you think maybe, maybe, uh, getting you energized in some way, but it's a sense of active rest, not just like going to sleep. So yes. as y'all were saying that the
1: picture that it created in my head is getting so lost in a project that the world no longer matters. Right. Right. I remember I've watched Eric get lost in art projects, and he would go like fourteen hours working on the same project and never move from his seat. Like time didn't exist, hunger didn't exist, and he would walk away. Hyperfixation, yes, yes, very (laughs) high level. But like he would walk away from those art projects and be jazzed. Like he was not coming out of that in a stupor of exhaustion. He was coming out of that like pumped to live life, and I. Like it's mind boggling to me, but that's exactly what I think Grant is trying to get across. Like, it's something that sparks joy, something that challenges your brain, but also makes like normal daily tasks, non-existent and like no longer relative to your person. And I think that's
2: the key. So it kind of induces to your point, it induces like a meditative State mm-hmm. in a way like a meta there's a meditative quality for instance like when you get into your writing, your art, your running, whatever it is it, it it kind of induces like this meditative state of like you just get so into it and you do lose track of like feelings or distractions or anxieties or just worry in general. It stops just-
1: the record that's constantly playing mm-hmm. in your head, right? Like
0: it's well, a good the- break. Lindsay shared a little bit of her notes that we were talking earlier too about, um, you know, I work on this a lot with my clients, but rumination is focusing so much on the past, the icky things and worry, anxiety is future oriented. And by getting this flow, you're not doing either one of those Mm because people, whether they have mental health illness or not, you know, flourishing, whatever you want to call it is they're, they're stuck either in the past or the future, but not the present. Um, right. there's a big, butt to all this, by the way, it, What grant said, is that the butt is for the flow. It's hard to do that in general. And especially during the pandemic. Yeah. And so he kind of argues that <laughs>
2: to think. be fair as
0: to, to most of us, <laughs> we're actually pretty good at doing this a lot of us more than we realize, realized, but the pandemic has happened. So it's made it harder to achieve this. And so he talks about again, how to get uninterrupted time into mm-hmm. your schedule. Focusing on small goals. This is the stuff when I was reading. It was like, oh, this sounds like some things we do at CBT. Um, You even use the word activated, Lindsay. This is what we often call behavioral activation. (laughs) Behavioral
2: activation. Yes.
0: Go (laughs) back to start doing the things that you really enjoy. Schedule it in, plan it out, Mm -hmm. and eventually can come back to be more of a natural process for you. Kind of like a jump start to some ways.
2: I definitely agree, and honestly, I'm thinking about all of the quirky things that I have heard friends, family, clients alike, all talk about, like these newfound hobbies during the pandemic. Like, mm-hmm. yes, oh, yep. I suddenly got into bird watching. Oh, I learned how to play guitar. Yeah, um, just all of these random things that people had never tried. Um, it, I, I believe, like these things were kind of like the the fight against languishing kind yes. of laid out. Yes. Absolutely. Do you Is remember ex- like even at the beginning of the pandemic, all these people were trying to make the perfect sourdough bread? Yes. And like the, all that stuff was like at the beginning of the pandemic, it's like people and and also, of course, the stores were like wiped out of like flour and all these basic things. Um, but I do believe that we we have been trying our best to mm-hmm. stay occupied and, and do all the things. But um, I do think there's a piece of that languishing component when you talk about, you know, how long is this happening? How long is this? Um, yes you kind of get bored after a while, your mind kind of gets that stagnant space of like, well, I don't feel like making any more sourdough bread. <laughs> now you got to make thing. cupcakes.
0: You got to, yeah, you yes. got to go on to something else.
2: <laughs> exactly. So you got to, no, there's definitely
0: up. a lot of positive that, you know, that comes out of what we're talking about here in the pandemic too, even though it's hard to hear this. People have rekindled like relationships or Mm -hmm. old things they didn't use, or they found new tasks. Mm -hmm. So there's is also a testament to us too of how resilient we are in a lot of ways, too. And I could even argue too that maybe languishing is not ideal, but languishing is better than being clinically depressed. There's no shame (laughs) in being depressed, but maybe all those things that, like those examples you gave, Lindsay, is what people were doing to at least keep themselves up at middle baseline at least so they're not down there
2: absolutely you know? think about all the people that started making masks for volunteers yes. remember when <clears throat> you know masks were unavailable for a lot of hospital workers there are a lot of volunteers that said hey i'll make some um which does bring in sort of what i i'm not sure if this was uh specified in terms of like identified as like the three m's but um in terms of the the flow aspect of it involving mindfulness mastery and mattering uh so becoming absorbed in whatever that activity is and being very mindful in the moment in the here and now and then um developing a form of mastery around whatever that thing is and so that really ties in to even what we talk about um in the psych world, uh, this, this idea of Mm self-efficacy and really kind of building up our belief in our, uh, sense of self and what we're able to do. So developing a sense of mastery is always good for our, our sense of self. And then the mattering is, you know, do something that makes you feel like you matter or can make a difference.
0: I'd say that the first two you mentioned is almost a guaranteed for what we're talking about. I think the, the mattering is kind of like a bonus for some people, Mm, you know what I mean? But that's, that's an excellent point is that um, if you can add that extra layer of, you know, you know, maybe for me just playing a guitar and that's enough um, and I'm okay with that. Or for other people with your mask example, that's that next layer, I think of also mattering too. Like I'm, I'm in the flow, I'm doing this, but I'm also contributing somehow to helping others as well. Yeah. But you, meant, you, know, you mentioned self-efficacy. That's a huge element. Um, people that feel like they're productive, good at doing particular tasks and, and have value that come from it. It's a good product uh, protective factor for, again, getting depressed or anything like that, because you feel like you're valued both for yourself and the people that are around you as well.
2: Yeah. So I'd like to kind of tie this in to what we had mentioned at the beginning with Uh, with regard to toxic positivity and the resiliency factor there is there would you like to say anything about how that plays into languishing or how that might um i don't know exacerbate symptoms perhaps
0: Yeah, I mean, well, so Grant is, you know, we liked it because Grant mentioned it towards the end there is is writing, um, which I didn't see that coming when I was reading the article. I liked it, though. But basically, he said like a common thing that all of us in the mental health field kind of say is that, generally speaking, physical health challenges, typically, there's always exceptions, are are typically not stigmatized as much as mental health. So there's been a lot of progress made for sure um, over the last decade, especially the last couple of years with the pandemic in destigmatizing mental health mm-hmm. um you know he, i love this one quote he had in there says like not depressed does not mean you're not struggling Um, It was a really good example. And from what he was getting at instead of like, you know, when someone says, I always joke about this, like when someone, how are you? How are you doing? How are you feeling? We always say good or great. It's like, well, we're not going to be honest. Why? Why would we even answer that? So he's like, maybe he should, maybe we should say languishing, right? Um, To avoid that. I feel like shit. Thank you. Shit. Yes. (laughs) It's a good way to put it.
1: Been a hard day. Thank
0: you for asking. I, I think to your point, Lindsay, is that when you dismiss these kind of negative emotions, um, and you kind of respond to distress with like false reassurance. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like everything's gonna be all right. People say well, that's optimism. Well, if you mean it, but if you're just saying it for the sake of it and you're not acknowledging that either you or myself is you know is feeling crummy or shitty, um, it's not validating. Um, you're you're not being empathic to others or yourself, um, and ultimately that just leads to more mental health distress. Think yes. about it. I know we're joking yeah. a little bit, Lindsay, but imagine if you could do that and say, "Someone, how are you doing?" shitty and you laugh a little bit and then your colleague says oh you want to talk about it over lunch or Mm -hmm. or just even saying i'm sorry you feel that way i hope you feel better those little things add up over time
1: it adds up because you're no longer lying to yourself and mm-hmm. everyone else. Because saying "fine" when you're not fine, oftentimes we do it because one, we don't trust whoever we're talking to with the information. That's a good point. Back yes. to the trust or, issues. Back to the trust <laughs> issues. Or two, we just don't feel like there's time to discuss it, True. and that goes into the transition part of our days because we've we've packed our days so full, and we're maximizing every moment and every hour and every whatever that. We don't have time to acknowledge the fact that we have feelings and that we're human. So we're just gonna try to ignore it and like hope that it goes away because mm-hmm. that's how that works.
0: No, it's a great point. I mean, I got colleagues that are psychologists next door. How are you doing, Adam? <laughs> I'm okay. I thought you were don't, about to draw some I'm names. Think, <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, I don't even I don't even want, like you said, trust not even I trust them, but it's like, do I really want to throw that on them? Like, how much? Like, I don't want that. I know they're busy. They're not gonna sit down and spend 15 minutes talking about my kid having a tantrum this morning. You know what I mean? So it is that interesting balance between, um, it's not always necessarily a facade, but also finding the right timing as well. Both to your point, Amber, trusting the person, but also feeling like, is this the appropriate time to talk about how we're feeling too?
1: Well, and that also ties in expectations, right? Because your expectation, if you tell me, you know, you had a rough morning with your kid, the expectation shouldn't be that we have a 40 minute discussion about it, but we can Mm -hmm. just acknowledge dang, that sucks. Like that makes for a really hard morning. I feel you like, I'm sorry that that's how your day started either offering the opportunity to talk about it or just moving on to the next thing because there's power in calling it out and identifying it. What did you say, Lindsay, name it to tame it, Name it, to tame it. Yeah. (laughs) If we continue to just walk through life and pretend that we're all fine, it's fine. Everything's fine. Like nothing's fine. (laughs) We're struggling.
0: What I I think that goes to the stigma piece that those are all excellent points is, and I've, in different contexts have talked about this with with clients or colleagues or friends is there's also again going back to stigma there's concern that if I'm if I'm the one that's complaining about the tantrum child or stressed out am I going to be the person that has like oh what's wrong with this guy over here because every time we ask how he's doing instead of saying great (laughs) Sometimes he's kind of honest and they're not being <laughs> honest with <forbid>. themselves. <laughs> Maybe I'll right, so, stop
2: asking Adam. Yeah, let's not, yeah <laughs> exactly. over
0: him. Just ignore my office door because he's always going to have something to say to you. <laughs>
2: there's always a crisis unfolding. <laughs> yeah. Just dodge that person.
0: You know, and I think that's going to be important culturally to kind of take down some mm-hmm. of those barriers with the stigma that just because there's someone that is struggling emotionally or languishing, that that's okay and not look at them differently. Just because yeah. they're perhaps more courageous or more open to share how they feel instead of stigmatizing them
2: lovely reframe i like that yeah i, like I really that. liked
1: that that was good you get a round yeah. of applause for that it one.
2: Is- yay. <laughs> it's a good one yay yay <laughs> but it's true so i i think also i would love if you can comment a little bit so yes we're talking about like toxic positivity here, but also there is such thing called positive psychology, which research has suggested that it can actually be quite helpful. So I wonder if you can comment a little bit on that, um, Dr. V. while I understand that you are a CBT person, uh, positive psychology is is still a thing. Well,
0: it's funny you say that because I think positive psychology can be a challenging balance with what we're talking about here. I agree. Um, Because some people argue if you use too much whatever definition one wants to use for positive psychology it can come off as toxic positivity exactly um, yeah so um you know it's, it's the whole idea of positive psych it depends people have different views of this but um you know, what makes life worth living, kind of focusing more on the individual societal kind of positive subjective experiences that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, So like like when I look at it as a CBT guy (laughs) is when someone comes in with mental health issues to not always focus on, look at all their problems and all their weaknesses and the diagnosis, the symptoms. A good mindset is also look at their strengths. Mm -hmm. How do I integrate that into therapy? Or if we're not Mm -hmm. talking about therapy, one's everyday life, um, you know, what are the other elements? Do they have some hope? That's where a lot of it um, came from as well with Martin Seligman was looking at learned optimism, hopefulness, all that kind of stuff. That was very important. Those are important ingredients to um, if someone has that from a mental health standpoint or in therapy, their prognosis is going to be much better if they're hopeful for the future and having that optimism. So I, I, it's a great question, but I think it's, it's a these days a delicate balance between it is. How, how much of that. It's like anyone that says like, oh, you know, um, so this person's an optimist. I call myself a realist, but they call me a pessimist. It's like, it's all going back on that spectrum component. But I think it goes back to is how honest you're being with yourself and the others and how you feel. Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. The honesty portion of it is the most important and also the scariest for Mm -hmm. exactly what you mentioned. You know, are people going to start avoiding me because I actually tell the truth, which (laughs) if that's the case, my, um, my feedback to that would be those aren't your people so that's okay if they decided to start avoiding you that's like um nature taking its course <laughs> um but I do think we have to be those vulnerable people and we have to start opening those doors it doesn't have to be with you know the entire world but
0: try right. being
1: I mean, like try being real with your people that you call friends or the people that you spend time with if I call Lindsay and I'm like hey how are you and she says fine I can hear in her voice that she's not like don't lie to me. Don't, that's not,
2: <laughs> we're going to have issues. It's not going to work.
0: Well, no, we Lauren can talk about how this that. applies to couples therapy. How's the life go? How's it going? It's fine, honey. Everything, but, oh, got, right? Is it really fine? Um Amber, to your point too, I think it's important to kind of, especially if people are trying this out for the first time, like yeah. the, you know, stick with those that are closest or, you know, they trust the most, the close family, the close friends, You know, I still think it's important at work to have like a social filter to some degree. But to the closest people, we should be able to be the most vulnerable with. Um, If if we don't feel, if I can't feel that close with my wife, for example, or some of my best friends, Mm -hmm. I think that says something about me and or the relationships that we're in.
1: And I think that's what it's going to take to actually make the change to society to kind of break down some of those barriers and break down some of those norms that tell us we have to be okay all the time because that's Mm -hmm. not, that's not real life. And if we present, um, the facade that we are okay all the time, then that's just going to lead to languishing, which could potentially to both of your point, eventually lead to depression and Mm -hmm. other, um, struggles. So start at home, start breaking it and just get comfortable knowing and calling out your emotions because Mm -hmm. like you're a human and it's part of the human (laughs) experience. We weren't, (laughs) we're not robots, man. No, we're not. We have feels.
0: (laughs)
2: <laughs> Lindsay, it's Lots CBT. It's
0: gradual exposure. You start with small yeah. steps first, and then we, we expand it to bigger steps where we start taking more chances as we gain more confidence.
2: You know, this definitely just had my brain go totally... Uh, like add on direction here not that we have time to oh gosh are you shaking your head at me adam
0: <laughs> no I, I nodded that's this is a shake this was just going
2: <laughs> oh okay i was expecting your hand to go on your forehead like oh my gosh what has she where's come she up taking his hand
1: buckling up let's go <laughs>
2: oh there we go there now we have it uh no actually as you were talking amber i immediately kind of thought of like oh man i would love to have you come back on um adam for another episode to to really kind of dive in um around like toxic masculinity
0: yeah (laughs) yeah you really did kind of go from one the man, so you made a
2: big jump, and yeah, that did, <laughs> yeah, but it has
0: the word toxic in it, so that well,
2: means yes. Us. But you know, whenever you're sitting there what talking if, about emotions what if and I stuff, said
0: I think that's a great idea, and I also maybe can counter that a little bit where I think toxic masculinity is overused sometimes. And I don't think I think some yes. of the stuff that I find prideful Nowadays, in, being, would, in yeah. being masculine, I find sometimes ashamed, and I don't like that. And so, yeah, we can definitely have. I think the I pendulum is my opinion, of- it's swung too far in the other direction. I think it's a valid point. It came from a good place. And now it's kind of gone a little, in my opinion, and others, it's kind of gone the other direction.
2: I would love to have you come back and talk about that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's important. But I hope y'all
1: saw how I got to that, right? I did. Yes. Relationships, sharing (laughs) feelings, men not being able to share feelings. I got it. I followed your train.
2: (laughs) Thanks for picking up what I was
1: putting down. I'm I'm a strong
0: man. I don't cry. Oh,
1: boy. (laughs) Adam, I'll be muting your line now. Um, no, <laughs> I think this was an awesome discussion. I know per usual, we went down a bunch of rabbit holes and covered a okay. lot of different ideas.
2: But I thought we stayed on track pretty darn well today. <laughs> I
1: mean, you-, you
0: did it a- for you, Lindsay. You did a good job. I
1: thought, yeah. I, I, thought I, doing I held great myself job, together. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, I do look forward to the follow-up uh, episode on toxic masculinity and that pendulum swing. Uh, But I'm curious, Lindsay, did you want to share anything else with the audience or anything that you wanted to make sure that we gave today or any last comments? No,
2: nothing, nothing in particular. I just would invite our audience to please remember to follow us on social media and remember that we do have a YouTube channel. So we do ask that you subscribe to what the Fox podcast on YouTube. That would be fantastic.
1: Then you get all of the side benefits of seeing our awkward facial expressions and all of the hand gestures because some and of us talk with our Adam hands. Adam putting his head in his bare hands, <laughs> shaking his head mm-hmm.
2: that you can't see.
1: Absolutely. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to the follow-up.
0: Thanks again. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it.
1: Bye y'all. Right. See, you, we'll next see you, you next Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> and
0: we all say everything is going to be just fine. It's going to fall. The sun is gonna set on your terrible day